the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today more than ever, it seems like people are emotionally charged, on edge, ready for conflict. It's so easy to get caught up in that energy. According to today's guest, Dr. Christian Conti, anger is natural and we're not wrong or bad for feeling it, but it can lead to acting impulsively with regrettable consequences. Dr. Conti is here today to discuss how we can deal with anger and inflamed emotions. Dr. Conti is a licensed professional counselor, a certified domestic violence counselor, and a certified level five anger management specialist. He was a resident therapist on VH1's Family Therapy, co-host of USA Network's The Secret Life of Kids, and co-host of Spike TV's Coaching Bad with Football Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. He's the author of the book, Walking Through Anger, A New Design for Confronting Conflict in an Emotionally Charged World. Welcome, Dr. Conti. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. What a beautiful introduction. Well, that's your life, so it's all on you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, I absolutely love your title, Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, because you empower people to say the, it's, the ball is in their court, and that's so true. Yeah, you know, thank you for saying that, because this really, the work that I'm doing came from a major overhaul in my life 10 years ago. And the one important lesson that I learned from everything I experienced is like you said, it's within us. It's, you know, get your head in the game and we have the power. Definitely. Well, you hit on an essential truth. And when it comes to anger and what I'll, we'll talk about today, the reality is that of everyone in the world, you are the only person you can control. Mm -hmm. And so as much energy as we want to focus on what other people should be doing differently or how other people should be thinking or feeling. The reality is we can only change ourselves. So I love it. Well, you know, and you've said, uh, and I thought that this was great. You said that working in this field for 20 years has taught you that the world boils down to two kinds of people, those with issues <laughs> and dead people. And, and that boy, that is true. So this is such an important <laughs> so conversation true. to have because there, every one of us, we have our own issues and we're dealing with people who have issues. So what got you interested in working with anger management? So, you know, I really thought about this. I tried to trace this back. It wasn't so much as a, a, a quick decision as an evolution throughout my life. So imagine this. So I grew up, my, my, my dad was an earth scientist. And I, when I was a haughty teenager, I said to my dad, uh, well, what got you interested in like studying rocks? And, and my dad looked at me and he said, well, look, if you're only going to live on one planet your whole life, don't you think you ought to get to know that planet? And I thought that was brilliant. And, and later on, when I was in college and I was struggling and lost and kind of looking for the best course of uh, path to follow, I thought about my dad's advice, except I thought, it, thought about it slightly differently. I thought, if I'm only ever going to live with me my entire life, why not get to know myself? Um, and that really set me down the path of psychology and introspection and wanting to learn as much as I could about me. So that was one kind of a, a moment that I think was a shift as I look back on my life. The other was this, Joan. This was my mom was an English teacher, and she's the most kind, loving human being you could meet. In school, she was a very strict disciplinarian, and the kids were pretty, I think they're pretty intimidated by her. She's 
tiny as can be, but I'll tell you this. Right before ninth grade, my mom said to me, now I went to school where in the 1980s where it, it was, it, if you watch an 80s movie where kids circle up and fight, mm-hmm. that was pretty much it. Like, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. So my mom looked at me before I went in ninth grade and she said, I better never find out that you ever watched the fight. If you see a fight, you step in and break it up. And when I really reflected on my life, Joan, I realized that she taught me then and there to step into conflict, not away from it. And there is a a, a conscious and a mindful way to handle conflict. But I've always kind of stepped into conflict. I've always been interested in learning, uh, constantly learning. And and then on the the most recent aspect, um, maybe 15 years ago, I was doing a study on my yield theory. And I went kind of undercover. So I'm a six foot, 250 pound bald guy with tattoos, covered in <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> Honestly, Jonah, you, you, I wouldn't be offended if you looked at me and said, oh, you ride a motorcycle, which I do. But still, <laughs> uh, so I, I went in and I did a group for people who were convicted of violent crimes. And I sat in the back. Um, so they just assumed I was there with them. And I watched how, A, the, the, the guys who were in there, what they had to do is they had to write a letter of accountability. In other words, they had to say what they were sorry for and this and that. Well, I was watching the guys before the group started, and one guy had to do this letter, and the other guys were telling him what to erase and what to write. And he wasn't actually taking accountability. He was just doing what he was supposed to do so that they could bureaucratically have the paperwork. And then the teacher was extremely pejorative. He, he, he was condescending. Some of you are are, are psychopaths, will never change. And so I thought, well, this isn't right. This whole system, not from their end, not from his end, not just, it's just not right. So I ended up uh, doing a study on my yield theory, it went real well. And then I just took over and I started doing groups for people convicted of violent crimes. And that's really how I kind of got into it. Dr. Conti, why do you believe so many people are angry today? I I mean, everywhere you go, whether it be social media, in person, I mean, even the supermarket, it seems like people are ready for a fight. What's happening? Okay, I really believe it comes down to this. Just the way I say there are two kinds of people, I believe there are two worlds that we live in. One world is what I would call the cartoon world. That is our world where we believe that things should happen the way we think that they we want them to. So we say that things should be like this. People should be nice to me. When I drive in traffic, people should get out of my way. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I get to work, the boss should acknowledge my work. But then there's the real world. And the real world is the way the world actually is which means people are going to cut you off in traffic and, you know, they're going to be in front of you in that line, the grocery store, and your boss might give credit to somebody else. As long as you align your expectations with the cartoon world, the way you think the world should be, you're going to be let down. But here's the catch, Joan, and this is what's powerful. It's not the world that's letting you down because the world is what the world is. It's your own thought. So I teach people to align their expectations with reality. The more prepared we are for reality, the more we will be able to handle it. But when you ask the question, why are people so angry? I believe quite simply and directly, we have a world where people are more and more caught up in their cartoon world. People should believe what I believe. They should think what I think. And that's a huge problem. And once you realize people don't always do what you want them to do, and that really is okay, and you're okay, then you have a much better chance to not be reactive. Okay, so understanding what causes us to be reactive, when we feel ourselves getting overwhelmed with anger, what are a few strategies that can help us really take control of that emotion? Okay, so I love that question. Neuroscience has taught us an awful lot. And in 2019, we're still not, we're not, we don't want to operate off information from 1950. And what we know now is this, you know, old anger management advice used to be, well, count to 10 and walk away. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, we've, we've learned the reality of things like seething rage. In other words, for some people, when they walk away, their mind, if you've ever had the experience where you were arguing with someone, maybe you went away to work for the day. And you come back at the end of the day and you're angrier, even though no new information happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically that's seething rage. In your mind, you kept spiraling, going deeper and deeper with it. And then by the end of the day, you're furious. So if someone has seething rage and you tell them to count to 10 and walk away, they're going to count to 10 and just get angry and come back and explode worse. Right. So we need to be mindful about this whole uh, old wives tales about what, what works and what doesn't. Here, here's what I think absolutely works. There will be a beginning middle and end to every emotional experience we ever have. And the more mindful we can be that 
there will be a beginning, middle, and end to every experience we have. The more we understand that people see our actions, not our intentions, and so our emotions are going to come and go, but our actions, they can't be undone. The more we understand those two crucial pieces of advice, the better in that moment we can begin to tell ourselves, let's come back to the concept, change your attitude, change your life, Begin. we, we begin to tell ourselves, look, I'm angry right now. It's extremely uncomfortable. It's not the end of the world. This anger will pass, but what I do in this moment will not be able to be undone. Now, when we start to approach the moment, we understand this feeling's not going to last forever. So it's basically having a different conversation with yourself. In the first example of step away and calm down, that's when you're feeding yourself the story of the rage. But what you're saying then is to rewrite the story, to understand your emotions and your actions, and to become mindful of your behavior. 100%, 100%. And and look, we are the only people that we can control. So it does come back time and again to what we say. I love when you use the word story because we create a narrative. One of the, I think, most powerful teachings that I share with people is this. I've really discovered this throughout the last 20-some years, and that is our mind always wants to match our body. So in many cases, we talk about self-talk and it's the thoughts that we have drive our emotions and they most certainly do. They don't determine our emotions because there are times you might have really pure, wonderful thoughts, but let's say you have a really bad stomach ache and now that starts to impact you. Or maybe you're struggling with uh, physiological anxiety or physiological depression. So it's not necessarily always you just say the, a magic word and things are going to be better. And when your mind wants to match your body, here's what happens. If your body's agitated, if your body's irritable, and you're not mindful of what your self-talk is, you'll begin to create a story, a narrative to match that uncomfortable body. So l- let me make, maybe this will be a good, clear example. Joan, let's say you and I down three energy drinks really quickly. Mm-hmm. And we down three energy drinks really quickly. Our heart's going to go fast. Our body's going to be shaking a little bit. And we're going to feel physically anxious. And here's what's going to happen. For busy people like you and me, we might start saying, oh, no, did I forget to do this? Was I supposed to be here? Uh, oh, I, I forgot I was going to do this later. And so we start to create a, a narrative of an anxious story. Well, imagine the same thing is true when you're feeling very irritable and very and, and agitated If you create a story to match that, it might very well be, my loved one didn't listen to me last week, and and I never did finish that conversation. And and now you start to ruminate and allow your narrative to become one of anger rather than one of the observer, just recognizing, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it's not the end of the world. So this technique would help us become skilled at controlling our own anger. But what about the hot-headed people in our life? Could the same approach help us diffuse a situation when we face their anger? It does, and I absolutely love that question because so the, the essence of what I've done, I've created something called yield theory, and yield theory is it's about meeting people where they are, attempting to see the world from their perspective. And so I think that in life, in life, we're, it's easy for us to be skeptical of others, right? We, if we see somebody that says something and we don't agree with it, boy, we're skeptical of it. Where did they get this info? I don't believe that. I don't buy into that. But what's fascinating is this, Joan. As much as everyone out there, every listener out there knows that we all have more to learn. As long as we're alive, we have more to learn. But the moment someone disagrees with us, first thing we do, we shut down. We, we're, we're trying to tell them what we're seeing. We're not speaking to listen. And, and we're not very skeptical of our own thoughts. So it's easy to be skeptical of others, difficult to be skeptical of ourselves. So I tell you all that to say that when I look back and thought, what do I really do? Well, 20,000 hours, I'm sitting down with people. What do I do? I wanted to be skeptical, not just of others, but of myself. So I thought, what are the core actions of what I actually do? Because I used to tell people, I just sit in the chair and talk to people. What you do with it is up to you. So I realized I do three things. And these are the things that we do when we encounter loved ones, anyone with anger, anyone with anger. I want you to do these three things. Listen, validate, explore options. Now, listen, as easy it is to say those three things, but the challenge is how do we listen? How do we validate? How do we explore options? And, and, and I, I want to make that make sense. If somebody starts being angry at us, for whatever reason, the first thing we do, we seek to defend ourselves. See, yield theory, yield theory is all about getting around 
people's defensiveness. And if I'm defending myself, I'm not getting around their defensiveness. So if I genuinely listen, and not just listen to what they say, but to how they say it, now I can validate them. Wow, it sounds like you're really upset with this, or let me see, you know, I can see what you're saying. Now, I'm not saying I understand, because I don't fully understand someone else's perspective, but I'm trying. And then lastly, explore options. So where do we go from here? How do we handle this from this moment forward? I know in my life when I get very angry, one of the biggest things that bothers me the most is when I don't feel like I'm being heard. And so I can see how with your approach, it could make you feel like the other person is trying to understand and empathize and sympathize. And that would diffuse the situation. Yes. And it's so it's exciting. I appreciate you saying that so much because it's so actually exciting. And the truth is, we do want to be heard. When we're angry, we want to be heard. The, pr- the challenge for a lot of people is when that person wants to be heard, we want to be explaining ourselves when the truth is if we would just take time to listen, really hear what they're saying, and then validate that. And validate doesn't mean condone it. Validate doesn't mean, oh, okay, I agree with you. No, I'm saying I'm acknowledging what you're saying. I'm acknowledging how you're feeling. And now we're gonna, then we can move into where do we go from here? This isn't establishing a right or wrong. It's just listening to each other and and trying to understand each other. Exactly. So I'll get people to say, well, well, then I guess I just have to give in to whatever they want. Right. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Me acknowledging what you're saying doesn't mean I'm going to adopt your philosophy or agree with you. I'm saying, look, at the heart of it, the heart of it is this. I I love, for fun, I, I, I study a lot of neurology And I know a lot of neurologists out there would cringe if I made this so simple because the truth is our brain is complicated. It is. It's complex. The whole brain is involved in all things. But if we really kind of give you just a, a basic visual, the center of our emotions is kind of seated in the middle of our brain, whereas our higher level thinking. So you and I talking right now, the way we're having an intellectual discussion, your listeners out there listening to this, if we put a, a brain image over a, a brain scan on them, the front part of your brain, your higher level thinking is activated right now. But when we're emotional, that center part of the brain is activated. So really quite simply, it's this. When someone's angry and you're trying to get them to see a different perspective, if you're talking at their frontal cortex when they're in their emotional system, the limbic system, then you're not actually communicating with them. It's like speaking a different language. But once you can validate them and get that energy out, now their brain is prepared to hear the message that you want to share with them. So Dr. Conti, you mentioned that you've been doing work with prison inmates. Tell us about this work and what types of changes have you seen? Well, I've seen profound changes. One of the things I'll do with inmates and officers is talk about a puppet a marionette. Now imagine if we're pulling the strings on that marionette and we're making the puppet dance this way and that way. And I do that in front of, you know, some of the toughest people in the world. I say, this sounds silly, right? A puppet. But how many of you have had your day going one way and then all of a sudden someone comes along and says or does something and now you're angry? Well, guess what? In that moment, they just controlled you like a puppet. You allowed yourself to be a puppet. So my question to you is, do you want to continue to be a puppet to others or do you want to be in control of your own life? Again, change your attitude, change your life. So now I say to guys, okay, instead of, because a lot of inmates, a lot of arguments come because someone says something, now someone has to say something back. And what I try to teach is maintain control of you, no matter what others say, because people don't say things about you. They say what's inside of them. And that's important to understand because then you don't have to be reactive. And so the truth is we know that we master what we practice. If we want to be good at basketball, we have to practice basketball. So I I stood in front of the, the inmate population and I said, look, At the end of everyone's life, if you've ever sat with someone in hospice, what do we know people want? They don't say, oh, I wish I would have hurt more people. They say, I wish for peace. Like, they want peace. And if we all know that our final moments are going to come at some point, and we all know that we're going to want peace, then we master what we practice. If we want peace, we have to practice peace. So I started a movement on three things. One was inner peace. Two was education. It's not just about learning books. That's wonderful. That's great. In fact, there's a great new book called Walking Through Anger that's coming out. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's also, when I, say, when I say education, I say personal growth, like constantly learning about yourself your entire life. And then three it is, so inner, inner peace, education, and then legacy. And I say this, the past is gone. We can't change a second of it. Future has not yet been written. 
All we have control over is the present moment. We are creating a legacy, like it or not, and our legacy is created as long as we're alive. It's all a part of our story. So you don't have to define yourself by what led to this moment. You can start to create your new legacy from this moment forward. The book is Walking Through Anger, a new design for confronting conflict in an emotionally charged world. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Conti and his work, you can visit drchristianconti.com. That's D-R, drchristianconti.com. Dr. Conti, in our final moments, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I want to leave your listeners with this. If you want peace, you've got to practice peace. It takes effort, but it's worth the effort. Dr. Conti, thank you so much for joining us and for providing strategies that can help us manage anger, ours and from others. So as I said, you know, it seems like we're living in a supercharged world today and what you teach can have a profound impact on our relationship and our daily life. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. She's here today to discuss managing uncertainty. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. Allison, everything that comes into our lives, whether it be good or bad, comes from the unknown future. So why do most of us see uncertainty as bad or even stressful? Well, one of the reasons that we think that uncertainty is always bad is because when good things come into our lives, we forget that they were once uncertain. I speak to so many people about uncertainty, and they always have this view that when uncertainty happens, I don't know what's going to happen next in my life, things aren't working out, but they forget that there was a time before their husband or wife came into their life, their best friend came into their life, a new job or of getting into a great school, we forget because the good things that come into our lives, we get used to them. And then we expect them to be in our lives. And we forget that everything that comes into our lives was once unknown. But when something happens in our life that we don't like, it causes us so much discomfort. And sometimes that discomfort doesn't go away. And so that represents to us uncertainty. And so that's why we think that all the things we don't know will be bad. But the biggest problem is that when we live with this fear of uncertainty, we live in fear. And when we live in fear, we look at the unknown and we kind of turn our backs on all that's possible in our lives. Because we think that if we risk getting a new job, we risk starting a new business, we risk going out with someone new because it has the unknown in it, we think that it can't possibly work out. And then we lose our courage to move forward with our lives. We lose our courage to make better decisions, to expand everything that's important to us, all the things that we love to do. So the most important thing that we can do in our lives is to establish a stronger relationship with uncertainty and realize that, yes, uncertainty could bring difficult moments, but it also could bring beautiful moments and joys and successes. And if we could see uncertainty differently, we're more likely to take chances in our lives. You know, Allison, something that you just said, all the things we don't know 
we assume will be bad. And like you said, if we can learn how to make that shift and and to remember that a lot of the things that are wonderful were once unknown, then that would really help us to eliminate that fear that you talked about. In addition to that, what are some ways that we can learn to view uncertainty with less stress so that we can use it to our advantage? Well, because this is such a bad habit that many of us have, seeing uncertainty as bad, it is really great when you're feeling stressed and you're feeling worried to remind yourself of the joys that uncertainty brings. And and a lot of people that I work with, they actually get a journal and they write about all the blessings in their lives. Like I said, whether it be someone you met, whether it be a new business or something your child achieved, write about it and then remember a time when these things were not in your life. And then you could actually see, wow, I didn't know this was going to come into my life. And look, it was unexpected, but it was a blessing and it was something huge and something beautiful. And when we start to see this, we prove to ourselves that uncertainty, yes, it could have bad things that we don't like, but it also could have good things too. And when you start to live like this and you start to journal, of course, you also start to embrace more gratitude. And the more grateful you are in your life, the more joy you'll have in your life, the more openings that you'll have in your life. There's also another thing too, is that it's not just that uncertainty brings good things too. Our relationship with uncertainty also shifts when we also recognize that We've had suffering in our lives, and we've survived it. We've survived the pain. For some reason, when we think about the unknown, we think about it like we're not going to be able to live through something if it happens that we don't like or that creates something we didn't expect. We can get through it. And so when we journal and we see that we've had good things come into our lives, and when we remember the things that we've survived, we start to build more foundation to face the unknown and recognize that the best thing in our lives we could do is to forge ahead, create good intentions, pursue our dreams, and know no matter what, we will figure it out. And again, I know I always talk about this idea of maybe, but when things happen that we don't like, we do have this idea of maybe that maybe what's ever happening will get better. Maybe we could accept it and still be okay. And maybe there's something very important for us to feel or experience in this moment. So no matter whatever is happening in life, if you have breath, you have hope, and you have maybe. And uncertainty is where all the goodies lie, and it's where your life's going to change, and it's where all the things you want in your life is going to happen. But you have to find a way to deal with uncertainty and lessen the fear so you could open up to everything that you truly want in your life. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners would like to learn more about Allison or if you'd like to listen to her podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, you can visit her website, alisoncarmen.com. And as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. We'll be right back. Do you allow fear to stop you dead in your tracks whenever you think about trying something new? Does that voice in your head conjure up a list of reasons to be inactive while you shouldn't try to accomplish a goal? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to face your fears and step out of your comfort zone. For most of my life, I was that person, too afraid to take a chance, self-sabotaging myself at every turn. I had a reason for every roadblock that I built. I allowed fear to govern my life. It took a major life upheaval and a lot of soul searching to get me to change my ways. And when I did, I realized that I hadn't really lived. I played it safe and simply survived. Over the course of the past decade, I have had the opportunity to interview people that have inspired and challenged me to step outside of the comfort zone I called life. I met warriors who have overcome tremendous challenges and displayed courage that most can only imagine. They changed my way of thinking. Some of these people were born without arms and legs or feet or hands. Others have lost their vision or the ability to walk, and others have survived horrific trauma and now live their life in service to others. Every one of these people had every right to live in fear as they faced unfathomable challenges, but they all chose to confront their limitations and achieve what many would consider to be impossible. They understood that fear is nothing more than a mindset, a perception, false evidence appearing real. They taught me that each time we face our fears, we gain strength, courage, and confidence in the doing. So the next time you're faced with an overwhelming challenge, an opportunity to try something new, or the chance to step out of your comfort zone, how do you push fear aside and take action? First, 
evaluate the driving force behind your fear. Is it a real consideration or something that you've created in your mind? Then make a list of your concerns and attack them one by one. Ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen? And by the way, it usually doesn't. Then develop a plan of action. What is your goal and how will you achieve it? Empower yourself with knowledge. And finally, muster up the courage to take a chance. The best plans are meaningless without action. As the explorer Christopher Columbus said, you can never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Remember, it isn't the end result that matters. It's the journey. And you just may enjoy the ride. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Does this sound familiar? You take care of everyone else first. You don't make self-care a priority. You hate asking for help. If you answered yes to any of these questions, you're not alone. According to our next guest, Suzanne Falter, no matter how busy or frazzled you are, you can get back to you. Suzanne helps those suffering from trauma, grief, and burnout find wholeness and fulfillment. And her new book is the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here, Joan. Thank you. Suzanne, let's begin by talking about you and what happened in your life that put you on the path to doing the work that you do today. <laughs> okay. It's, um, it's, it's a story, all right. So uh, I was a committed, driven workaholic, completely disconnected from myself, overproducing in every corner of my life and not taking much time to really take care of my true deep needs back in 2012. And in very short order, the business I had built burned out because I had too much work and I couldn't sustain it. I started to have some health problems and simultaneously the relationship I'd been in for a year and a half ended and I had just moved in with this person and suddenly I'd lost the place I was living as well. So all these things happened and I was in a kind of a chaotic space. And then my daughter, my 22-year-old daughter who had moved to San Francisco to become a healer and kind of pursue this esoteric thing she wanted to do and she was basically living with me. Uh, she dropped dead from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. And I had had dinner with her a few hours earlier. She was acting a little weird. Um, as it turns out, she had epilepsy, very well controlled, but one in a thousand epileptics can die very suddenly like this, mm-hmm. something called SUDEP. I didn't know about it, nor did she. Nobody had ever told us about this possibility, but there I was. And six days later, we had to take her off life support and her life ended. And during that time, that six days, I became incredibly aware of what a critical moment this was in my life and that if I was going to live and she was going to die, I was going to have to redo my life to be in balance, to be whole, and I was going to have to live my values. I was really into the money before this happened, which is one reason I worked so hard. And the minute she died, money became intensely unimportant. And everything I really cared about came into very sharp focus. And I felt myself really being called forth to become a better, stronger person, very much like she was, because Teal was the opposite of me. She was really a grounded, loving, compassionate person, couldn't have cared less about possessions or ambition or money or any of it. She was very present. She would travel around the world with her little guitar and some cash in her pocket from waitressing. (laughs) She was a musician, so she played and sang on the streets and all sorts of cities. And she was just really very present in the moment. And um, I learned a lot about how to get back to myself and how to live in a much more self-compassionate way in the two years of grief that followed. Because for two years, Joan, I did not work. I just took myself totally out of the equation. And I focused on having a life that was meaningful and, of course, grieving and really getting back in touch with what I needed here and now. And that was Teal's legacy because she taught me how to do that. 
which was really learned from her journals, which she left behind. Suzanne, I had a similar experience. It wasn't with the loss of a child, but in a period of six months, my 23-year marriage ended, my mother died, and my sister died. And that was the start Mm. of all Mm. of the work Mm. that I'm doing. So I understand everything that you're saying. I had similar realizations. But what I want to ask you is, knowing what you need to do and actually doing it are two very different things. How did you pull yourself out from that grief? I really felt like her death was so shocking and so radical that there had to be a lesson in it for me. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think she just died in vain. I really felt like my job now as a mother was to become a better person, the kind of person Teal was. And this was how I was going to fulfill her legacy. Because like I said, she wanted to be a healer. Nobody really knew what that meant, including her. But she kept saying, I'm going to get this big healing gift. This healing gift is going to come to me. And we kind of like, you know, Liz nodded politely, right? But in fact, here I am teaching people about self-care and sharing little pieces of her journal and the lessons I learned after her death, which is healing work. And I feel like I found the purpose in that crisis. And then all those other factors, the bad relationship, the stressing, stressful job, the home that wasn't a right fit, all of it was taken away to deliver me to my right place. And I did a similar thing. And David Kessler, who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and, and he's a grief expert, and he recently published mm-hmm. a book, The Sixth Stage of Grief, which is meaning. And he developed another uh-huh. stage to the mm-hmm. model. And, and that was what I did. I found this work. And I believe that there had to be a reason as to why I went through all of those things. So I think finding meaning is really a key to healing. Yes, we're ready for this message as a, you know, culture, as a group of people, as a, as a society, we're ready to delve into issues of meaning. And we need it. And we need self-care more than ever, because the times we live in are intensely stressful right. on all fronts. And I know that I experienced extreme mental exhaustion. I didn't know how to move forward. And you and I are talking about extreme situations of grief, but people can feel this way from a variety of life situations. So what do you advise to combat that mental exhaustion? It's so critical to begin with the question, what do I need right now? One of the things um, I write about in the book is to tune into yourself, to ask yourself, what do I need right now? My premise is that we have um, been, we were born perfectly aligned. Every little cell in our body was attuned towards telling us what we need and helping us get that. And that would keep us in optimal running condition. But then life happened, right? And we grew up and we had traumas and stresses and responsibilities and all of that shifted. And as women, especially busy women, we are often much more conditioned than the less busy women to saying yes and putting other people first. So a lot of my work is around helping people get back to their inner knowing, to that sense of alignment. And it begins with asking yourself habitually, what do I need right now? And then maybe it's a drink of water. Maybe it's something simple. And you can go out and arrange that for yourself, and it'll give you just a little bit more clarity and perhaps confidence to prioritize yourself again. And eventually, the question gets answered with, I need a new relationship, or I need a much more interesting job. And eventually, we begin to gain in our empowerment and our ability to create what we need. And then I would assume we would set better boundaries. (laughs) Right? Hopefully. (laughs) And, you know, I have to do several chapters on boundaries and conscious decision-making and making requests and things like this in the book. Because seriously, when we don't have boundaries, everything falls apart. And it is so easy to not have boundaries because often, uh, as in the case of my childhood, I had to take care of the adults in my house. So I didn't have any boundaries. I didn't know what a boundary was, you know, and I... I was just kind of a a little doormat by the time I became an adult. And I've really had to learn how to do the uncomfortable thing of taking that step and saying no where indicated and holding space and being polite. You can be firm. You can always be kind, but you can be strong. 
as well. And I was always afraid to be strong. And I really learned how to be strong and how to set some boundaries. And, you know, in that two-year period, I had some people around me who presented some boundary challenges. And I had to be very, very clear. It was like uh, there were three different people in a row who really pushed my boundaries. And it was like the universe was giving me a test saying, come on, can you do this? Show us again. Let's see if you can really do this. And, And in fact, boundary pushing opportunities will arise when you commit to the idea that you are worthy and you deserve self-respect and the opportunity to say no when necessary. The book is The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. Suzanne, where can our listeners go to get more information? Well, I have a website, Suzanne Falter, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-F-A-L-T-E-R.com. Suzanne, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? At the end of your life, will you feel... You took good enough care of yourself. At the end of your life, will you feel like you could serve the people around you really, truly effectively, even by taking care of yourself? And the answer always is yes, if you give yourself that chance to tune in and say, what do I need right now? Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It was a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How to go beyond fear. Here are six tips you can use. Number one, usually fear stems from a thought. Ask yourself, why is this something I should fear? Is it the truth? Number two, fear comes from a vicious cycle, beginning with feelings of uncertainty, then going into fear, anger, and harm. Notice this pattern. Number three, immediately trust your gut. This is where your power resides. Number four, meditation, practiced often, will help you to get beyond these negative emotions. Number five, as you relax, your higher self will help you to find and feel these emotions in order for them to be released. Number six, trust that infinite power within yourself before you trust anything coming from your mind or anyone else's mind. Allow me, Jill Einschneider, intuitive holistic coach, to help you to step away from the world through a daily practice of meditation and other powerful healing practices. Please learn more about me at jilleinschneider.com. Call for a free consult at 561 945 Four eight one two. Do you ever feel like there is no support and you are doing things all on your own? With hypnosis, you can bring in the feeling of being supported. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Battaglia, and I am a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. Many times, people feel disconnected and the weight of the world upon them. It's not a very comfortable place to live in. Through the mind, and visualization, we can create support within us and all around us. Take a moment to take a nice deep breath in and slowly let it out. And imagine yourself in a forest sitting against a tall, strong tree. Allow yourself to feel the tree having your back. Feel the love from the tree. Feel the support and draw from its strength to help you feel good within and supported. Allow yourself to really embrace it and see yourself moving forward in your life with the support, with the strength from the tree, and just see yourself feeling complete and happy. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find out more about hypnosis at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look 
look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, search for Conversations with Joan, and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, cyacyl.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. your health. Our next guest, Dr. Michael Greger, teaches how to combine medical discoveries with weight loss accelerators to help us maintain a healthy weight. Now he has published a cookbook to go with his bestseller, How Not to Diet. Welcome, Dr. Greger. Thanks for coming back on the show. I'm so glad to be back. So, Doctor, you believe that we shouldn't be, quote unquote, dieting. What are the key ingredients of a successful eating plan, one that can beat the results of any trend-based approach? Yeah, diets don't work by definition because going on a diet implies at some point you're going to go off a diet, whereas permanent weight loss requires permanent dietary change. Healthier habits just need to become a way of life. It's going to be lifelong. You want to lead to a long life. And that means, uh, you know, besides just being safe, sustainable, nutritious, and healthy, I talk about the 17 criteria for weight loss efficacy. Uh, For example, uh, optimal weight loss diet should be anti-inflammatory, free from hormone-disrupting chemicals, full of fiber-rich foods to trap calories and flush them out of your body on down the list. Basically, it comes down to eating real food that grows out of the ground, a diet centered around whole plant foods um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of from fields, not factories. Um, uh, That's uh, the the best in terms of weight loss at both 6 and 12 months from the peer-reviewed scientific literature and also the only diet ever shown to actually reverse chronic diseases like heart disease, the number one killer of men and women. Doctor, can you tell us a little bit about our gut microbiome? What is the impact of foods on this? Oh, you know, we used to think that... uh, are the good gut bugs in our colon just had to do with gut health. But now, thanks to these so-called fecal transplant studies, we realized that no, the, the bugs in our gut have play a critical role in our immune function, mental health, um, as well as our metabolism. And so, for example, when we eat prebiotics, which is fiber and resistant starch found concentrated in whole plant foods, particularly whole grains and legumes, which are beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, they convert these compounds like fiber and resistant starch into what are called short-chain fatty acids absorbed back into our bloodstream, circulate throughout our bodies, get up into our brain, actually dial down our appetite um, such that if we eat beans for supper, for example, um, and then test people the next day at lunch, more than 12 hours later, people eat significantly less food because by that time, your gut floor is eating that same bean burrito, producing these appressing chemicals. So you feel just as full eating hundreds fewer calories because of what you ate last night. Okay, so you just published a cookbook. So let's talk a little bit about how we can incorporate these strategies into the way that we cook. What are some of your best hacks? Oh, well, so I talk about the 21 tweaks in the book. There are certain specific foods that act as fat blockers and fat burners and starch blockers and appetite suppressants. Um, and so, for example, I recommend two teaspoons of vinegar with every meal when our body metabolizes the acetic acid in vinegar. We a natural boost of a fat-burning enzyme called AMPK, causing people to lose about five pounds over three months for just pennies a day and not removing anything from their diet. But it's like, okay, what are you going to do with two teaspoons of vinegar every meal? Or um, there's a spice called black cumin, a quarter teaspoon of which a day has been proven in randomized controlled trials to accelerate the loss of body fat. only costs three cents a day. Um, so it's cheap, but like most of us have never cooked um, with black cumin. So these are the things that I critical ingredients I want to include, and I don't just want every recipe. 
to be healthy, including the desserts, but I want every single ingredient of every recipe to be healthy. So how do you make something salty without salt or sweet without sugar? These are some of the challenges we face, and I'm really proud of what we're able to, uh, to, to come up with. Uh, and I think it's yeah, important to mention I don't receive a penny from my books. All proceeds I get from all my books are donated directly to charity. I just want everyone to have access to this life-changing, life-saving information. All right, so let's make everyone hungry now. Can you share with us a few of your favorite recipes? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the healthiest foods on the planet are vegetables. So I'm always trying to think of creative ways to make vegetables delicious. And so uh, roasted vegetables. Uh, Veggies can undergo a complete transformation, changing their taste and texture, get all caramelized. So there's a a black cumin-rubbed balsamic roasted cauliflower I really like. Uh, uh, There's a cauliflower alfredo linguine with roasted asparagus. Uh, I don't know, basically anything creamy. Some of my favorite recipes, like a spinach and artichoke stuffed portobellos. Um, uh, those are those are some of my kind of favorite kind of go-to recipes. Um, but I think there's something to fit every palate. And, Doctor, where can our listeners go to get more information? I think go to nutritionfacts.org, which is a free, nonprofit, science-based public service providing daily updates on the latest nutrition research via bite-sized videos on more than 2,000 health topics with new videos and articles uploaded every day at nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Greger, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Keep up the good work and stay safe. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.